Please bow your hearts in prayer with me. Lord, it is with gratitude that we come. And um, God, that you would take our sins that were red like scarlet and you would do the most amazing miracle that you would make them as white, our hearts as white as freshly fallen snow, giving us a purity we could never find on our own so that we can join the family of God and that you would graciously adopt us. Lord, help us to live more and more in this level of gratitude and in an appropriate, grateful response to all that you've done for us. God, you are so loving and gracious, and, you, and your grace and your mercy, Lord, you have just lavished on us. And so, Lord, with gratefulness now, we turn to your word asking for your help. Lord, that you would instruct us in how to live, that you would reorient our hearts to your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Whenever you enter another culture, whether it would be short-term or, or more on a long-term basis, it is uh, in your best interest to learn the values of that culture, to know what's appropriate and what's inappropriate, to what's honorable and dishonorable, to know what is good in the cultural values of the place you now find yourself. And at the same time, no matter how long an individual is in that other culture, they're always going to stick out some. They're always going to, it's always going to be apparent that, oh, this, this isn't your first culture. This isn't your primary culture. I mean, if I went to Ireland, the home of my people, and lived there for 25 years, even at the end of those 25 years, it would still be quite apparent that while I have an Irish name, I indeed am from the good old U.S. of A. Now, when a person becomes a follower of Jesus, they become a citizen of, of a new nation, we should say. A holy nation. A nation that is a priesthood of believers, and it is the kingdom of God. And one thing we need to realize and embrace is that there is a struggle because the kingdom of God has a different culture than any kingdom of this world. That the kingdom of God has a different value system than even Ireland, as hard as that may be to believe. And this cultural difference is, is seen very clearly in the Gospels, especially where we've been over the last couple months. And one way that it's been particularly clear is with what we would call these disasters by the disciples of how they try to mix their earthly kingdom with the kingdom of God or how they make their assumptions on what the kingdom of God is and end up being uh, tragically and sometimes hilariously wrong. But their blunders and misspeaks as disciples are, are commonly shared by us as we, in different ways, in different times, try to mix 
the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Now, the unique difference in the analogy is that when we become believers uh, and, and when we enter into the kingdom of God, we are essentially instructed through Scripture to live as though the kingdom of God were our primary culture. To live as distinctly members of the kingdom of God, as, as distinct as it would be for me in Ireland where other people are prone to sunburns just by simply looking out the window, like myself, that, that as, as, as distinctly American as I would be even after 25 years, that we as believers would be distinctly members of the kingdom of God here on earth. That it would become our primary culture. That our, our value system would align more with the kingdom of God than any country here on earth. That our, our pursuit of greatness, that our pursuit of honor, that our giving of honor, that what we define as truly good would be distinctly heavenly. And today's passage specifically addresses heavenly greatness versus earthly greatness and what Jesus models and teaches and challenges us that living with this new identity in Christ, with this new citizenship in heaven, that we would orient our hearts to a heavenly definition of greatness. If you have not yet, I invite you to turn to Mark 10 we're going to be picking up in verse 32, and we're going through the rest of the chapter today. And then after this week, we're going to be taking a break from Mark. We're going to spend the rest of the summer in Proverbs, except for July 24th, when we'll be ordaining Pastor Austin. And this is an announcement snuck into a sermon. Remember, there's going to be a potluck that day, and it's for Austin's ordination, and he's not here. So I'm just going to tell you, bring your A-game to that potluck, okay? You got it, church? All right, let's read the text. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But, I, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for, 
for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a great and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. They called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is, calling to, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus, and Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Jesus' life and teaching challenges worldly definitions of greatness. And the Lord calls us to embrace heavenly greatness as he walks to the cross. And this walk to the cross is where we pick up. They're now on their way to Jerusalem. They've been heading there the whole time. And the whole way to Jerusalem, Jesus has been telling them, hey guys, I'm going to die, and three years later I'm going to rise again. But Jerusalem, and getting within proximity of Jerusalem, makes this walk to the cross all of a sudden have a little more uh, reality to it, if you will. See, Jerusalem does not have the best history it is the city, as Jesus declares in Matthew 23, that kills her prophets. And Jesus is not, and, and Jesus says, oh, how I would have longed to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks. But Jesus is not coming to gather the chicks. He is coming to be among the prophets who are killed in this city. And we have a couple interesting observations that Mark gives us on the crowd. First, that they were amazed. And this is a natural reaction to Jesus' works and words. You think about the things that these people have seen. We are often amazed just as we read about them. And you think of seeing them with your own eyes, of being in close, intimate proximity with the Lord of heaven. And what is so wonderful is that after following Jesus these years in this close, intimate proximity, they were not at all bored with Jesus. 
But in getting to know Jesus more, he had only become more interesting and more amazing. Sometimes you meet someone who seems really interesting, but after a few times of hanging out or a few months of being friends, their, their novelty, if you will, wears off a bit. But not the case with Jesus. When we truly look at Jesus, the one who gives eternal life, the one through whom the Father created heaven and earth, we will only grow in amazement. And if by chance you find within your spiritual walk a bit of melancholy setting in. We ought to know that the issue does not rest with a Savior who has all of a sudden become dull and outdated, but the, but the issue rests with us. And when we take time to see and live by faith, we will find the solution to our boredom is in the Lord himself. So they were amazed. And appropriately, and they were afraid. I think that's so interesting. That they would follow Jesus and have this mixture of being amazed and afraid. And the reason they're afraid is because they're heading to Jerusalem. This is like anyone approaching Council Bluffs. Like, it's not a good situation. And I'll add that it's not just people from Omaha who think that. <laughs> but heading to Jerusalem, the people knew exactly where this was going. They've been hearing Jesus talk about his suffering and dying. And as they are approaching Jerusalem, they know that that is exactly what's going to happen. They're, 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 I can, you know, they, I'm struggling here. All right. They've been struggling all along as Jesus has been describing his suffering. And they've been struggling all along to understand it. And they've been looking for a metaphor in it. And they've been hoping this isn't literal. And as they are coming to Jerusalem, they are realizing, oh, it's literal. Jesus is going to suffer and die. It's actually going to happen. And I just, we need to point out here that following Jesus can be scary. He's going to take us places that we would rather not go. He's going to lead us into conversations we would rather not have. He's going to confront us with our own sin that we've tried very, very hard to brush under the rug. And following Jesus can be very scary, and we need to keep our eyes on him, knowing that he has a plan, that he is sovereign, that he loves us. And these factors of his plan, his sovereignty, and his love were on display. But they're on display in a way that requires faith. And Jesus, pulling the 12 aside in the midst of the crowd, explains what's going to happen. Now, take note that leading up to this, each time Jesus has, has been describing what's going to happen in Jerusalem, he's gotten more and more detailed. And this time, it's like Jesus pulls out his day planner for what's going to happen on Good Friday. All right, so here's what's going to happen, guys. I'm going to get delivered over to the chief priests. They're going to condemn me to death. They're going to give me to the Gentiles. There I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be spit on. I'm going to be flogged, and I'm going to be killed. All right, so at noon, be ready. You know, it almost feels like that. Jesus goes into such detail for what's going to happen in a little over a week that it's as though he's pulled out his whatever the first century uh, form of Google Calendar was. 
But isn't it comforting that even in such a horrible event as the crucifixion of our Lord, that the Lord had it all planned out to such detail? He could have said, oh, I'm going to be, and he already had said, I'm going to be treated horribly, I'm going to suffer and die. But to go into the detail to the point that he's going to be spat on and mocked and flogged and then killed. I can sense, I just, I just sense that the heart of Jesus in here is telling the disciples, this is going to happen. It's going to be really scary. Don't panic. Three days later, I'm coming back. Don't panic. The Lord is sovereign even in the most chaotic times. The other thing that we need to point out here is nobody is dragging Jesus to Jerusalem. Jesus is literally leading the way. He's walking ahead of the 12. He's walking ahead of the, of the crowd. He's leading the way. No one's dragging Jesus there. He is willingly walking to the cross. And what the crowd and the disciples see as a coming persecution, a major conflict with a powerful group, Jesus sees as the ultimate victory is about to happen. What all of Scripture, starting in Genesis 3, is building up to, that Jesus is going to crush the head of the serpent to do what he's going to describe down in verse 45, that he is giving his life as a ransom for many. So the Lord calls us to embrace heavenly greatness even as he walks to the cross and as he contrasts our value systems. So then we get to this, this next blunder, if you will, of the disciples, James and John. Now, the other gospels say that it was actually their mom who asked this question for them, which uh, I think is, is a more funny account. Um, but the lesson is the same. And the lesson is we don't get to puff up our own greatness. But for us to be great, we need to embrace the Lord's definition of greatness. So James and John, sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder as we come to know them, they say, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And I... I think the patience of Jesus is on full display here. The audacity of this question. The, it's just so presumptuous. Hey, Jesus, we've been, we've been here from the beginning. We think we've earned something. Why don't you give us the best thing ever? that we would be in prominence, that we would share in the glory of you, Jesus. Why don't you let us do that? God loves us so much that he does not say yes to every single thing we ask for. And isn't that good news? My life would be a train wreck if Jesus gave me everything I wanted. 
And so the the disciples have this worldly ambition and asking worldly things. Place us at your right and your left. We think we can do great service to the kingdom of God sitting right next to the throne. And this is exactly why we need a proper view of God and a proper view of ourselves and related to him. And so Jesus tries to give them that. You have no idea what you're asking for. Can you drink this cup? Can you take on this baptism? Confidently, they say yes, and Jesus tells them they will. Now, they could not drink the same exact cup of Christ because the cup of Christ was the cup of God's wrath so that we could be forgiven of our sins. But we do know from history and from Scripture that James and John did have a cup of suffering for them as James became the first martyr. John suffered greatly as well. That they, or James was the first martyr of the disciples is what I meant, but they share in the suffering of Christ. But Jesus points them to their proper place by saying, it's not for me, but for, to decide this. And he's, he's pointing to the God the Father. You guys are trying to shortcut to glory. I'm not a shortcut to glory. I'm the source of salvation. We don't get to become glorious because we have earned anything. And so here, Jesus brings out the great contrast. The kingdom of God is greatly different than the kingdom of Gentiles. And there's a rebuke in here for James and John, though subtle, that you have been embracing the definition of greatness laid out by the Roman Empire. You have let the world tell you what greatness is. And you know what those Gentile leaders do? They lord it over them. They... They exercise their authority over the people. Carry my stuff for me. Pay me your taxes. Do this and that and the other. You have to serve in my army. If I come to your town, you better feed me before you feed your kids. It produces divisive fruit. It is prideful and it is concerned only with the status of the leader and not the status of those for whom you are leading. But the kingdom of heaven is quite different. Why in the world would the greatest make himself the least? And Jesus says, that's what the Gentiles do, but it shall not be so among you. And how many times do we try to lord over our authority? Even if we only have authority over just a few. How many times in our pride and in our arrogance do we become more concerned with getting our way than we do with serving those around us? But it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be be a slave of all. He's saying, forget earthly status. Forget earthly privilege. Be consumed with God's love and obedience to Him. Be consumed with the glory of God. And that's the only way to do this. 
The only way we as people can really make ourselves a servant to all is by first having a proper view of our Lord in heaven. And with a view of the Lord in heaven that is right and true, that puts us as these people that he has lovingly saved, then it would make us eager to serve. And it would make us eager to look at Christ and to lay ourselves down. For even the Son of Man, verse 45, came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Now why, when talking about servanthood and humility, would Jesus say, be like me? Is he boasting? Is he self-serving? I assure you, he is not. When Jesus says that one must be a slave to all and then points to himself, he's not boasting. Instead, he's giving us an invitation to take a good, long, hard look at our Savior and to imitate him. It's an invitation for us to see the greatest of all and to grow and likeness of him. He is the king of heaven. And he lives the kingdom values out to perfection. We see a, a smaller picture of this than the cross, certainly, but a, but a valuable picture nonetheless in John 13 when Jesus takes off his outer garment and washes the disciples of the feet, or washes the feet of the disciples. Saying to them, no... No student is greater than his teacher. And if I'm doing this, you need to do it too. He is the absolute greatest. And in valuing what he has done for us, we shouldn't live out the world's values in the kingdom of God. We shouldn't try to use a, our prideful, boastful, arrogant, contentious, loud voices to build up God's kingdom. But to live out our citizenship by following the king who embraces his own values. And this points to the full integrity of Jesus. And isn't it great? Sometimes, sometimes in the world we have leaders who say, don't, don't do what I do, just do what I say. It's such a hypocritical statement. And here Jesus is saying, do what I do and say. And he is full of integrity. And we would be wise to take our cues from him much more so than we do from our culture and our flesh. So let us, as we, as we aspire to greatness, let us apply a couple different litmus tests that we find in Scripture. Galatians 5, 19 to 26. Let this be a litmus test as we look for what in me is the fruit of the flesh and what in me is the fruit of the Spirit of God. Am I acting in this greedy, flesh-filled, angry way that has malice, that has lust, that has bitterness in it? Or am I acting in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Let us, let us use the litmus test of Philippians 4, 8 and 9. Where Paul you know, goes in, whatever's true, noble, worthy, and he lists out these wonderful attributes and says, think about these things. Fill your mind with this. Netflix is a terrible way to consume your mind. And I'm not saying don't be entertained, don't enjoy some things that are out there. 
But make sure that the first and foremost thing filling your mind is God's Word and the virtues of our great Creator. Be filled with Him. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be renewed. Have your minds renewed, Romans 12, 2. Let our model of greatness be fashioned after the one who gave his life as a ransom for us, that he paid a debt we were incapable of paying, that he freed us from our captivity and bondage to sin and gave us a freedom that is literally out of this world and beyond what this world is capable of giving. And as those who depend so greatly on this level of humility that went to the cross willingly and the kindness that we would be saved, let us gratefully value and pursue it in ourselves and value and pursue it in those we look up to. And so Jesus, right after teaching on heavenly greatness, he demonstrates heavenly greatness. He gives us a picture of what this looks like. And this is what makes Jesus such a masterful teacher. It's not good enough for him to tell the disciples, but then he goes and shows and lives out what he means. And Jesus here, he is on his way to Jerusalem. It's safe to say he's got a few things on his mind. I don't know about you, but when I get a lot on my mind, I have a hard time giving attention to people around me. I only am going through this mental checklist and then whatever squirrels running around outside that distracts me. But everything else is consumed with my busyness. But Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem, with a lot on his mind, some pretty high priorities. Oh, he's only going to provide salvation for the world. That's all. His disciples and followers are full of these intense emotions of amazement and fear and this weird mix of the two. They're hanging on every word. So as they're getting closer, they're they're getting out of Jericho on their way to Jerusalem. And there's some blind guy calling out. There's some guy on the side of the road who seems unable to help himself and he's calling out and so they do what any rational person would do and they say be quiet we want to hear Jesus he's busy and Jesus has none of it he gives this man Bartimaeus priority and look at the look at the honor that the gospel writers give this man Bartimaeus son of Timaeus we don't get that much detail on almost anyone in the gospels past the first few chapters he's given more recognition than Pontius Pilate almost this is a big deal this man Bartimaeus is a really big deal to the Lord And Jesus, in all his importance, on the way to serving all humanity on the cross, stops to talk to and heal this man. And isn't it interesting that Jesus, I mean, Jesus in his power could have been walking and going, be healed and just keep going. He could have done that. But he doesn't. He stops to talk to him. 
This man learned, Bartimaeus learned what we need to, that Jesus is not too important to, for you. And in fact, you are important to Jesus. The Son of God cares about you. So Jesus asks this guy, whom he's likely seen for the first time in his earthly life, he asks him, notice this, he asks Bartimaeus the same exact question he asked James and John. Isn't that interesting? He asks him the same exact question. What do you want me to do for you? I wonder if the tone was different, though. As James and John came and said, uh, teacher, we'd like you to do whatever you ask us to do. I assume they had a slightly British accent when they said that. I think that's safe. <laughs> and whereas Bartimaeus cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy. Jesus, son of David, have mercy. Notice the awe and the reverence. So Jesus gives him priority, and then Jesus gives him ear. And it's so important for us to realize Jesus asks him the same exact question as these men he's been walking very closely with for three years now. Sometimes we can have a dangerously deprecating view of ourselves. And we say things like this. I don't know, God has a lot going on. I don't want to bother him with this. There's so many other people with bigger prayer requests. I, I don't need to take my issues to the Lord. Jesus was on his way to lay his life down for the sins of the world. It doesn't get bigger than that. And Jesus has time to ask Bartimaeus, what can I do for you? Oh, may Bartimaeus' persistence and reverence be a call to prayer for us. That we would realize we pray to the same Lord that Bartimaeus spoke with on the road that day. A Lord that gives us priority, that gives us ear, and that actually cares for us. It's so interesting. And I know they're different questions, and I know they're different scenarios. But Jesus says, your faith has made you well. He says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Jesus heals him and just releases him to just go do whatever he wants. And this is so different than the rich young ruler we talked about last week, where Jesus says, sell all that you have and come follow me. And it's so different. But this guy does what the rich young ruler should have. He drops everything and follows Jesus. The real difference is the rich young ruler was trying to find a way to salvation where he could earn it and was not looking at Jesus for who he really is. And this guy looks at Jesus for who he really is experiences the grace of God and says, where else would I go? 
I'm going to follow this guy wherever. I'm going to follow this guy right into Jerusalem. And Bartimaeus becomes this twofold example for us. First, he's our example in what it looks like to drop our notion of earthly status as Jesus gives this man priority, that we would drop our notion of earthly status and love whoever's next to us. But he's also this example of what it is to gratefully follow Jesus. To start our day by saying, Lord, thank you that you saved me. Thank you, Lord, that you've made me a child of your house where I have an inheritance for all eternity. And to look fully at what Jesus has done and to say, that's my value of greatness. Now, there's a, um, there's a culture war happening right now. And um, the culture war I'm talking about is probably not what you're thinking of. It doesn't make the news. There's no memes about it, unfortunately. But I do believe that it's a culture war that we cannot ignore. And it's the culture war that happens in our own hearts as we are citizens of heaven that act like we're citizens of the world. Everywhere I go, I've, I've, by God's grace and kindness, I've had the opportunity to go to countries all over the place. And I'm so grateful for it. It's so enriching. Everywhere I go, people look at me and, I, and they're like, that guy's an American. And it's not, I'm not entering any of the countries as though I'm leading the Olympic coalition into the opening ceremonies with a flag draped around me. I'm not, I'm not doing that. But they just look at me like, that guy's an American. And I am. I blew some stuff up earlier this weekend. I'm going to watch other stuff get blown up. I have a very important uh, appointment with a bratwurst later. I just, I'm an American. And it sticks out to everyone. But unfortunately, my citizenship in heaven is not always as obvious. Once we come to know Jesus as Lord and he becomes our Savior and we become citizens of heaven, a major aspect of our growing Christian maturity is that we would think and act more and more like a citizen of heaven and less and less like a citizen of this world. The problem is that we hear and learn and see modeled more and more and with so much volume what it means to be a citizen of this world. That we miss the gentle whisper of the Lord. That we miss the nudges of the Holy Spirit. And maybe you're like me. Maybe you find yourselves in times of frustration wanting to be louder, wanting to write that perfect email that will surely solve all your problems. Wanting to yell, wanting to join people who will be louder than you even, wanting to find a human-centered solution to fix what you see as a human-centered problem. Or maybe you just think you're entitled to stuff and owed something. I don't think I'm alone in these. 
And I pray that in myself and in you, that when those moments rise up, we will look strongly and carefully at the words of our Savior and make ourselves a servant to all. To say, you know what? I'm not entitled. I'm going to deny my selfish ambition and my vain conceit. And I'm going to take on the mind of Christ. I'm going to renew my mind because this world has programmed me to think in a certain way that is not honoring to the Lord that has no place in the heavenly kingdom. And I need to lay myself down and seek out those opportunities. I pray that as the culture war unfolds in our hearts that we would gladly surrender more and more of our flesh and let the Lord bring about his work within us. And I think it is when the church does this the most consistently and clearly that our witness becomes the strongest. Because God's kingdom is the kingdom that matters. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, we just have stuff we need to confess. That Lord, we harbor pride in our heart that too often we think we have the greatest solution and we don't go to your word to illuminate the path before us that we should walk in. Or we scoff at the fruit of the Spirit. We scoff at gentleness and self-control and we uphold anger and bitterness and vitriol. Lord, would you redirect us would you forgive us of our sin and redirect us? And, and orient our hearts to care about your glory and your glory alone. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.